Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Life is a journey, so they say. It's not a dash, although sometimes it may certainly feel like it, right? Everything's zipping past you at such high speeds. But it's more like a long summer trip. You yourself may be zipping past landmarks and other sites to see, but you've got a lot of ground to cover, don't you? However, there will be those moments where you and all your traveling companions empty out of the car, where you and all your friends will take in a beautiful scenic view or an educational tour of a famous museum that you've been keeping on your bucket list. My favorites are those Ma and Pa restaurants that the locals all boast about, and you as a conspicuous tourist only stumble into if you're lucky. And you've made a family pact not to eat at any of the restaurant chains. Yes, that's when you know your family road trip is hitting on all cylinders and you find the best bread pudding ever for dessert. Well, this Wednesday is the official beginning of summer, and this morning we're going on a journey together on foot with God's people, starting in the Old Testament and moving through both time and space to God's people in the New Testament. Today, as well as you know, is also Father's Day. So like so many family trips, there's always a certain amount of dad jokes you have to put up with on every trip. And yes, I'm giving you fair warning right now, this journey today is no different. Since we're in the book of Exodus, following the children of Israel who are now fresh out of Egypt and heading enthusiastically, at least at first, to the promised land, about a 350-mile trip, like from here to Las Vegas. We have to ask the question, though, that all inquiring theologians want to know. How do you turn a four-day, 21-hour speed walk into a 40-year journey? Haven't you ever wondered how long it would normally take to hoof it from Cairo to Jerusalem? Well, that's what the GPS map says. You can walk it in under one week. So there's got to be a good explanation as to why on earth it took the two million escapees from Egypt so long. Certainly there's a good explanation. In fact, I have here Dad's top five cringeworthy explanations. Why it took Israel 40 years to do a four-day journey, starting from the bottom. Number five, they wanted to take full advantage of the 40,000-mile 40-year tread warranty on their sandals. (laughs) Number four, they meant well, but some of the more vocal Israelites, if not more informed, insisted on waiting for the Bethlehem star to appear so they could follow that. They got their calculations wrong there. Number three, Moses, to whom the first five books of the Bible are attributed, suffered occasionally from writer's block. To boot, his scribes advertised chiseling chiseling rate of four letters a minute proved to be quite the exaggeration. It's hard writing on stone. Really hard. Get it? Number two. What's more, a rumor spread that one night Moses was overheard outside the scribe's tent screaming, you numbskull, I said engrave it from right to left. Got to know a little bit about Hebrew there. 
Reportedly, the scribe had just finished Leviticus and was about to start on the book of Numbers. Got to rewind, start all over. And the number one, last but not least, number one dad reason it took the Israelites 40 years to complete a four-day journey. No matter how much their wives pleaded with them, the men all refused to ask directions. (laughs) Mercifully, we'll end it there. Just a little bit of biblical levity to lighten your Father's Day, all you dads out there. Now, onto our God and Father who reigns over all, our Heavenly Father, and His Father knows best plan for His people. First off, God is not joking around with His people when He tells Moses on Mount Sinai, go down and tell the people, you shall be my treasured possession. He adds, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Wow. Imagine hearing that promise that God treasures you and will make you a kingdom of priests after you and your people have been Pharaoh's abused slaves for the last 400 years. Imagine hearing that promise from God to make you instead a holy nation, set free for his special purposes, sanctified. This from the mighty hand of God, who just miraculously parted the Red Sea in his successful plan to rescue you from bondage and now gather you and your families at the base of this holy mountain, Mount Sinai. That's where we pick up in um, Exodus. This was the defining event that would identify God's chosen people, the Exodus. This scene now is about 50 days after the original Passover. I think you know what I mean, the real one, so to speak, where God sent the angel of death all through the land of Egypt to smite all the firstborn, human and livestock. Any um, livestock and humans, by the way, that didn't have splattered on their doorpost the blood of the lamb to protect them from the angel of death. So moving forward from that monumental night of Passover, 50 days, that should remind you of something, right? Some festive commemoration, in fact. In the life of the Christian church, we just celebrated it. We call that celebration 50 days after Passover. Pentecost, thank you. I knew you guys would get it. Pentecost, for us Christians, of course, is primarily a celebration of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the newborn church. It's that momentous occasion in which Jesus' promise to receive the Holy Spirit is fulfilled, along with the bestowing of power to be his witnesses all around the Mediterranean and all around the known world back then. That was also for the Christian church a defining moment, for sure. But did you ever wonder, before the Holy Spirit showed up, it was probably the year 30 AD um, for that Christian church Pentecost, being 10 days after Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God the Father and 50 days after his crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. What were all those tens of thousands of Jewish pilgrims back then from all around the Mediterranean already coming to Jerusalem for to celebrate each year? Going all the way back to this pregnant moment in Exodus chapter 19, 1,400 years prior, what was the original kickoff Pentecost celebration all about that the Jews practiced then for that many years? Well, the answer is not in Exodus 19, but Exodus 20. 
and in the giving of the Ten Commandments, written by the very finger of Yahweh, the one true God himself. This occasion was a demonstration of God's commitment to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, as his name was changed to be, to be their God and for them to be his people, a treasured possession. This special relationship comes out in our psalm for today uh, as well. Psalm 100, in our opening verses we read, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. That same Psalm 100 goes on to confess, We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Beautiful words for a nation that has just essentially come out of a multi-generational bear trap licking their wounds. Beautiful words. But it shouldn't be overlooked that the promise connected with that land that God is giving them is a conditional promise. It's conditioned upon what God says right there in Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, unquote. All the earth is the Lord's, and he is able and faithful to give a portion of the earth to his people, providing, as he said, they obey him and keep his forthcoming commands. In verse 8 it says, All the people answered together, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And then it says, Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Yes, Moses reported the people's words to the Lord, but it's not like the Lord did not already know what they were going to say. Psalm 139 verse 4 reminds us, Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Are the people really going to do all that the Lord tells them to do? Will they obey his every word? Of course not. We know that just from reading the Old Testament history. But that is a lesson they have yet to learn themselves. And isn't that a big lesson? St. Paul tells the Galatians, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Not works. St. Paul was a scrupulously instructed Pharisee as regards the law of God, and it took a blinding light on the road to Damascus for him to get the message. What message? The one he himself, Paul, will pass on to both Jew and Gentile alike. Namely, that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's Romans 3. The nation of Israel will struggle with the law of God, and it's about to instruct his servant Moses uh, to bring down that law only to find them already breaking the first commandment. Israel will struggle at times by completely abandoning God's perfect law, as when they went chasing after false gods and brazenly built altars to demons all over the the land that the Lord in time did give them. When not completely abandoning God's law, 
Israel will struggle with self-righteous pride by conveniently tweaking the law, lowering its standards to make it manageable enough to claim that they themselves are fulfilling the law and therefore have nothing to repent of when John comes crying in the wilderness. This is where and to whom Jesus targets his statements like, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. You've heard it said, to not commit adultery. But I tell you, it's in your very heart that you violate God's perfect law. Your corruption comes from within, not from without. And that's right about where Jesus calls those religious hypocrites of his day whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but inside full of rotting dead man's bones. This struggle with the law is real, and it is universal. Perhaps we should all be called Israel, for that new name Israel that God gave to Jacob means one who struggles with God, or just plain old struggles with God. Mercy. There was a whole nation, check that, an entire planet that fits that description, right? Indeed, we all do struggle with God and with his holy, perfect law. In his day, Peter certainly struggled with the reality of the law's heavy burden. Lord, he once told Jesus, his master, though all fall away from you, I shall never. That's Peter's echo of what the freed Israelites naively told Moses back in Exodus, our Exodus reading. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Really? Matthew records our Lord's response to Peter, a kind of all-too-sobering reality check. Simon, I tell you truly, before the cock crows three times, you will, uh, before the cock crows, you will just deny me three times, from Matthew 26. St. Paul makes our relationship to God's perfect and holy law very clear. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, that's the bad news. Like we read in our epistle uh, lesson, death reigned from Adam to Moses. But St. Paul, who had once lost his sight, was healed by the same Lord Jesus Christ, who enabled him to see some things very crystal clearly now. Things like the relationship between God's law and the gospel of God's grace in Christ Jesus. The good news and the bad news. To the Corinthians, Paul writes, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That same Lord, Lord Jesus Christ who came and perfectly fulfilled the law for us. And to the Romans, Paul says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's good news. That's the whole reason why Jesus came down to this sin-plagued planet, so he could take the punishment of our sin on the cross and bestow upon us his forgiveness and life eternal in his resurrection glory. Today, he still looks at the crowds, the masses, and has compassion upon them all because they are harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. And that's where we come into the picture once again. First, as his beloved church for whom he laid down his life, then next, as his sent ones, that is, his apostles, with a small a. He calls us and deploys us to share the love we received without pay, the free gift of eternal life in his name. Then he invites us to join the giving party, 
freely give out the grace and mercy as we forgive those who trespass against us. This is how we journey through this life, the life of faith. He's taken us through our Red Sea, right? That's our baptism with water. We came out the other side of that, delivered from bondage to sin, free at last from all our age-old enemies, including death and the devil, as we are united with his resurrected life and robed in his perfect righteousness. Now the Holy Spirit transforms us, sanctifies us, empowers us to walk in his ways, whereas before the law was powerless to affect our heart and soul, uh, except to convict us of the sin and falling short of that law. It's just as Peter told his readers, those who have come full circle, reconciled, not via the law route, mind you, but those who are on a faith journey, trusting in Christ alone, the good shepherd. That's the good news. Peter says to his audience, the scattered exiles, but you are a chosen race. You, the church, are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's from 1 Peter 2. Amen. And now may he who began this good work and you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.